Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. episode of Garden DC. We're joined by Phil Normandy. He is recently retired from Brookside Gardens, which is located in Wheaton, Maryland, just outside of Washington, DC. Welcome, Phil. Thanks, Kathy, for having me. So how is retirement treating you, Phil? Well, I'm I'm trying to figure out what the daily rhythm is, but Mm -hmm. I'm keeping plenty busy with... um, some other tree related issues that I have been um, contracted to do. And so that's been good. And I'm also enjoying not having a schedule. Yay. Well, that's the dream, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Being able to self guide your, your schedule and do what you love. Plus you don't have to wear pants. (laughs) (laughs) There's always that. (laughs) So uh, I feel like I, you almost need no introduction because you are a horticultural rock star in the mid-Atlantic area and nationally and internationally. But for those who don't know you, Phil, uh, let's talk a little bit about what you just retired from, what your career was like, and um, how you first got into gardening. So maybe let's dial back all the way to baby Phil (laughs) back in North Carolina. And were you born with a green thumb and chlorophyll in your veins? I think I was born to this field. Uh, There is a very early photograph, which I kept on my desk for years, and now it's in a box, a four-year-old Phil holding a plant, you know, is one of those family pictures where they take the picture and then somebody will run and get their truck and somebody will run and get their baby doll. And I was like, wait, let me get my plant. So I would call that an early warning sign. (laughs) My mother was an avid gardener, dirt gardener. And my grandfather was, did subsistent farming, but he grew amazing vegetables because he had to, and he, he knew how to graft fruit trees. So there must be something. So I've always been playing with plants and gardening from the minute I could get outdoors. So I guess in that regards, I've been blessed that I was able to follow that into a career. Did you have any favorite plants as a child? Were you more towards the flowers? Uh, evergreens or vegetables? Well, I think my passion was always trees. And while in our backyard garden, we didn't have a lot of trees initially, but I enjoyed learning the flowers that were in flower beds that my mother would grow and being frustrated by the things that wouldn't grow in that hot climate. Um, But I would say that early on, it was always about trees and woody plants. And then I got better at the rest of it. Hmm. And when did it occur to you that you could make a career out of it? Well, people kept saying when I was in junior high school, you know, your, your parents talked to your neighbor's parents, neighboring parents, and they all went, oh, he needs to go to the agricultural school. 
And so it was just assumed that I would go to NC State, which had a horticulture program. And that's actually not how I started. I did start at NC State, the Agricultural Land Grant College in Raleigh. But I actually enrolled in the forestry program, and I was in forestry for two and a half years until I realized that it was more geared toward harvesting plants than growing plants. And that was what changed my career path. Hmm. And from NC State, where did you go from there? From NC State, I was fortunate enough to get a job at the Bartlett Tree Company Research Arboretum which is outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. And I was there for three years uh, developing the collections on the grounds there. It really is a research institution, but I was more involved with the grounds. And I left that job to go off to graduate school, which was uh, at the University of Delaware in the Longwood program, which is a, or was a collaborative cooperative program between Longwood Gardens and the University of Delaware, and it was a master's in public horticultural administration. But it was very small and specialized program. There were only 10 students, and you were afforded a whole lot of opportunities that a regular horticulture master's program would not have had. And it really did emphasize what is the nature of public horticultural institutions and how do you manage them which was a bit of a leap to me because when I went in there, I was a plant geek. And when I came out, although it was without the degree, but I got the training, um, I was more schooled in what a public horticultural institution is and how complex it is. Hmm. And so many of our past guests on the Garden DC podcast have, have gone through that program with Longwood mm-hmm. and so many stellar uh, people that work at public gardens in our area in the mid-Atlantic, but also throughout the world. So mm-hmm. you must have so many connections from that experience. Well, it, it really did open the door, and that's why I went. I was very fortunate to get into that program. Uh, one of the, I guess, judges that was interviewing us for inclusion in the program said later, well, he's just a plant geek, but I think he can change. So they took a chance on me. (laughs) They were like, we can mold him, we can shape him, we can prune him. And they did. And I really (laughs) have used a great many of the things I learned in that program, which had really nothing to do with plants. It had to do with how are you, what is, how you, it, it could have been a museum program. In fact, there was a museum program that was a sister program there, uh, through winter tour. And I have learned and used so much of what I learned in that program and working in an institution like Brookside, which has always focused on the, the public garden professionalism and not the fact that it was a park. And speaking of Brookside, you started there in 1979, which is, I think, about 10 years after Brookside originally opened, correct? That's correct. And then you just recently retired, so 42 years. Why mm-hmm. was 42 the magic number? I guess I was just ready. I don't know. I was actually going to leave a year earlier, and then COVID hit. Mm-hmm. And then I got we stopped doing a lot of things at Brookside because of COVID, and it allowed my some of the less fun things in my job to go away. And I was actually able to focus on horticulture for that year and catch up on some things that I, that I hadn't been able to do because of administrative duties. 
So it was a good year to be to be working there as in my job, maybe not some of the frontline people. And, and I couldn't, I really couldn't do my job from home. And so when, while the other people did, I was kind of there and was able to, to really um, make use of that time. I like that uh, phrasing of the less fun activities. <laughs> so I would just imagine that's more the paperwork, administration, budgeting side of things. Yes, my job had has become had become in the last eighteen years or so had become running a section or sections of Brookside Gardens. So while I got to play with a lot of the horticulture, uh, I was still managing people and work plans and doing purchasing and managing a budget, which at first kind of was new to us because the director was managing the budget and she realized that we were perfectly capable if we were given instruction. And I found I was actually pretty good at it. I rather rather enjoyed it. And for those who have unfortunately never visited Brookside Gardens or maybe never been in the Mid-Atlantic U.S., can you briefly describe what they would find and what the major collections there are? Sure. Um, the nice thing about Brookside is it's it's human scale, it's homeowner scale. It's a 35-acre public garden that's run by the park system, the Montgomery County Park System. So we have a lot of support uh, and infrastructure through the park system. But we are a display garden, so it's not an arboretum per se, where the trees are all assorted by um, their botanical relationships. It's not a um, botanical garden that we just focus on the esoteric. It's a display garden and we can have rare plants and we can have collections, but our collections at Brookside are landscape collections or dispersed collections. So all of our, we're going to talk about viburnums today and we have viburnums all over the property. Mm -hmm. And I say we have because I'm always going to say we, even though I'm retired. And just because I left doesn't mean they left. So those plants are still there, just as an aside. Um, the thing I mentioned about it being human scale is it's very nice to go to Longwood Gardens or to go to estate gardens. But those are palaces. And you can go and be in awe of the things that money can do. But when you come to Brookside, you can see things that are still involve money, of course, but you might be able to take something you see there and apply it in your home garden. That's so true, Phil. Yeah, there's definitely a difference between visiting there and visiting, say, Winterthur mm -hmm. or um, some of the other big estates or, you know, going down to Biltmore. Biltmore is aspirational, but Brookside feels like home. Exactly. That's a really good term. And I will tell you the founding fathers, and I actually saw a lot of the documents in the 60s when they were trying to put this together, that's exactly what they wanted. There wasn't anything that was homeowner human scale in the DC metro area in the 1960s and earlier. You had the National Arboretum, which is a lovely place. You had the Botanic Garden, which is a different sort of lovely place, but they were monumental institutions and not really geared for, well, that's a nice plant. Can I grow that? And can I learn something about it? it not so much. And Brookside has been involved in some of the plant introductions that people might be growing in their home gardens. Can you talk about a few of those before we dive into our viburnum topic? Sure. 
Um, for a few years, and actually that was the reason I was initially hired, we had a collection of plants that we imported from Japan for evaluation. The thinking was that so many of our garden cultivars had been brought over from other countries, but that was a people thought, well, that was then. Everything's been introduced. Well, certainly that's not true. Every every country is continuing to find new things to to introduce, whether they be from the wild or be bred or developed. And so there were all this, these interesting plants in Japan, and we had this collection, and we sent them out to a number of people throughout the country to test and evaluate those that looked like they had potential. And out of all that work, essentially, I would say we're probably known for about four plants. Um, the one that and, that are commercial, hmm. the two that come to mind that are the most commercial would be the Moonlight Climbing Hydrangea, which was found in a forest in Japan and named by us. And then the Goshiki Variegated Osmanthus, which was a Japanese cultivar named by them, validly named, so we didn't rename it. Mm-hmm. And that's just about on every street corner at this point. And the mm-hmm. nice thing about it is it was one half zone more cold hardy than other osmanthus when it was introduced, and it's not reverted to green, and it rarely fruits, so it's not throwing seedlings around. We also had, um, by accident, we distributed a climbing hydrangea that was given the nicknamed Brookside Little Leaf, and unfortunately the name stuck because it really did not originate at Brookside. It actually originated in Holland, Hmm. and the small leaf characteristic goes away when the plant ages. Furthermore, it's also sold under it, often the wrong species. So that was one that sort of slipped out the door, but that that happens. Hmm. And I know that you personally have an affection for variegated plants. I do. Can you talk about some of the special ones maybe in your home garden? Um, I have a variegated um, Japanese hydrangea vine that Monrovia introduced, and I like that. I have a big variegated Eliagnus that's starting to climb into a crepe myrtle, Um, a variegated ornamental grasses, a variegated native yucca. And I use use these as uh, spotlights in a green garden. So I want when I want to draw your eye and, and make a discernment in, in a big green border, I would put in a, a variegated plant such as that. Hmm. Yeah, there's like a love-hate thing, I think, going on now with variegation. So I think a few people have been burned on some of the things that have been, that have been introduced to the market and they kind of reverted back to their plain green. But they will. Yeah, some can do that, but if you can get, you know, a good healthy one and prune out any of the sports that are turning green, you know, keep an eye on it. Well, and it depends on the origin of the variegation, which is a whole different scientific podcast we don't have to go into. But if you've got a plant that sections of the stem show a different color, then any bud that's going to come out of that section is going to be variegated. But if there are buds on the other side of the stem you're going to get green branches. And so you have to keep pruning those off um, just so they don't overtake. Mm-hmm. Good advice. The other thing I would say is going along with variegated that you can get the same effect with yellow foliaged plants that are not variegated. And that's a love hate thing too, because, and actually it's one of the plants that Brookside introduced that I think people did enjoy 
there is a golden-leafed uh, forsythia, which has the cult of our name Ilwang, which is a Korean place name. I hmm. would not have chosen that name because I find it difficult. And this is a forsythia for the shade, and it does bloom, but it keeps a modest size. There's one on the back corner of the Brookside Visitor Center. And it really does lighten up, it's like it's in our azalea garden, just to lighten up that that place. But some people don't like yellow foliage plants because they think that they are sick or anemic or iron-starved or whatever. So I guess that's a perception problem. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also an experience. The more you see it, the more you recognize it and, mm-hmm. and get used to it. So it's kind of like high fashion that way, right? Mm-hmm. When, yeah. when bell bottoms were first introduced... They looked hideous, and then they look fabulous after a few years. And apparently they're going to be fabulous again one of these days. <laughs> exactly. All right, so let's go to our overarching subject of versatile viburnums, and I'm going to say that plurally, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk first about how we might use a viburnum in our landscape. If we were just had a quarter acre, a half acre or so, um, suburban lot, where you might place that in your landscape? Well, that's a great question. Um, viburnums, there's a whole lot of different species. There's native ones and there's um, imported ones, many of them Asian. And we'll get into some of that in a, in a little bit. The thing to keep in mind is that most viburnums are big shrubs. Most of them, but not all, are deciduous. So those two factors are going to very much dictate where you put them um, and what effects in the landscape you want. Most are not evergreen, and some people find the evergreen ones to be a bit coarse. However, um, keep in mind, these are not dwarfs. These are not cute little apple basket-sized plants. These are plants that can get easily six by eight, if not larger. And so you're probably going to want to give them a lot of room and probably use them in the background. Um, you, of course, know will know your your property best, but these are large growing shrubs and they do eat up a lot of real estate. But they can be useful in that regard for screening, be it summer screening or screening all year round or I have one in a small space that I've actually pruned up into a small tree, and we'll be talking about small tree viburnums in here too. So the other point I would make is is a landscape principle is the size of the space you have kind of determines how the plant reads in your mind. So if you have a tiny little courtyard garden and you put a a medium-sized shrub in it and prune it up, that's going to function as a small tree because it's the biggest thing in that small space. If you've got three acres and you've got a row of 15-foot-tall viburnums, they're not going to look like trees. They're going to look like shrubs. Mm -hmm. So context is important. Hmm. That's a good point about the scale of them. That Yeah, they can definitely take over a small yard Mm -hmm. (laughs) if you let it. And so for... A typical homeowner, home gardener going to their local garden center, what are the more common viburnum varieties that they might see for sale these days? Okay, that's a good point. Um, As I said, it's a mix of Asian and natives. And again, we'll get to specifics eventually. What's commonly sold is double file viburnum, which is grown for its flowers. Um, There are a number of viburnums that are called under the collective name snowball viburnums because their flowers are big and round 
and white. Um, and there's many species that actually make snowballs. So it's not, not just one species. There's European, there's American, there's Chinese, and there's Japanese snowballs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're so pretty in the garden in the springtime. I do know that a lot of people mistake them for a hydrangea. If they don't look at the foliage, they just look at the flower. I'm glad you brought that up. I've been thinking about that in preparing for this talk. Um, they are not even related, but they do share that weird characteristic of having lace cap type flowers, inflorescences, flower clusters. The individual flowers are very small, but this is a cluster of flowers. And those are, they're called lace cap because they have the bigger petaled flowers on the outside and then the inside is small without, apparently without petals. And they're generally flat topped or dome shaped. Whereas the snowballs have mostly all sterile flowers with the big showy petals and they make a, a globe, you know, about the size of a baseball or a softball. But they're, it's just a floral weirdness and the two genera do uh, share that. And I can't tell you exactly why, but I can say they're not cousins even. Yeah, and I think it's the timing and the shape that, that can fool people sometime. Mm -hmm. But the scent, I think, is really what, besides the foliage, that can differentiate it. Um, yes, not all of our burnums. Well, very few hydrangeas have scents mm -hmm. or noticeable scents. And viburnums will have more scents. Some will have really pleasant scents. Some will have unpleasant scents. And we'll get to that. Um, but you're not going to have that big, coarse, rounded or toothed leaf like you're going to have in hydrangeas. And the other thing, of course, is that um, most of the pink and blue type of hydrangeas, at least, are much, much smaller and well-behaved in the garden compared to our viburnums. And for basic maintenance and care, full sun to part sun? Or yes. Yes. could you put it in a little less sun but just not have as much flowering? It depends on where the shade is. If you have high shade, like in the viburnum garden at Brookside, uh, where the branches of the trees are way up, uh, the reduction in flowering is not noticeable. If you stick these in a dark woods, however, many of them are just going to get too gangly and not put on a great flower show. They really would prefer to be on the edge of those woods or in, or in full sun. Mm -hmm. So maybe more morning sun than afternoon sun? Sure. But again, they can, many of them can take full sun. They just, mm -hmm. so uh, back to the garden center, you're going to see double file viburnums. Um, the one that I think is a real prize is the Korean spice viburnum and its sisters, because this is the one that attains a reasonable size of six by eight and has these small pink and white dome shaped, like golf ball sized flower clusters that are intensely, intensely fragrant. They smell mm -hmm. like carnations, and that scent carries on the on the breeze. You really only need one on a small property to be intoxicating. I think every garden should have viburnum carlesii in it for that purpose. So those are those are going to be found. And then a couple, you know, landscapers and some garden centers will also have a couple of screening type viburnums, such as the glossy chendo or the rough leather leaf. Those are the more common ones you're going to find, um, along with the various snowball types. Hmm. And speaking of the, the scented Korean one, the Carlisii, is that a big attractor for pollinators? It does seem to be. I've noticed a lot of butterflies 
and and that is that is an Asian plant. It is not a native. Uh, but I have I have seen a lot of um, things fluttering over those flowers. And so we were talking a little bit earlier about the native viburnums. What are the big differences between those and some of the Asian cultivars we're, we're getting? Is it the fruiting that is beneficial for our native wildlife? Uh, that's a hard question. I I think we, we, we risk getting into that contested discussion about the value of native versus not native. Um, mm-hmm. What I can say is that the natives, like the three or four that I can talk about, really have good fruit, which are valued by wildlife because that's how they pop up everywhere. And the flowers are usually less showy. That is to say, they're not got the big sterile flowers, but they are very much visited by pollinators. Not necessarily having a pleasant scent, but pretty enough. And these tend to be rather large plants. Some are tree form. And like I said, when we start getting into specific species, I can go into those details. Hmm. Yeah, and I was just looking up a related topic, which is, do deer eat viburnum? (laughs) Before we had our talk today, because I know that will be one of the number one questions listeners want to know. And I see in um, one of the rating systems out of Rutgers that they give it a B rating, which means it's not deer proof, but it's not top of their list for, for munching on. That's a great way to put it. And also remember that deer feeding lot, a lot of time has to do with population pressure. If you are in a, an enclosed area and the deer don't have access to a big forest or it's very crowded in their forest, they may eat things they wouldn't normally. But typically, um, they don't really devastate viburnums and mm-hmm. particularly the ones with the fuzzy leaves. They really do not like fuzzy leaf plants. Yeah, that's been my experience as well, is that like hairy leaf or that fuzziness is something that they steer away from. Mm -hmm. So speaking of the hairy leaf, I was looking at a couple of the native varieties that we might talk about. And one of them, the maple leaf viburnum, um, has a more maple shaped leaf, white flowers and black fruit. And that's the acerfolium. That seems to be a little less of a showy plant, though. It's true, and I have seen a good bit of deer feeding on that plant. We have some growing wild, actually, in the woods at Brookside Nature Center next door to the gardens. And they have not really, because there's a lot of deer over in those woods, they have not really ever attained their mature size because they keep getting browsed down. But if you can get maple leaf viburnum in a relatively deer-free environment. It makes a lovely, handsome shrub. The flowers are foamy and white, attractive to pollinators, and the plant can get to a modest size. And it also tends to make colonies a bit, so it can it can fill in. It's, it's a lovely addition to the garden, especially if you're going for more naturalistic. Hmm. And since you mentioned making colonies, we, we might use that to have a little digression about some viburnums that don't behave quite as well as others in the garden. Um, what ones would you steer people away from that might reseed or create thickets? Well, I'm sure that that's really the ones of concern are the um, non-native ones. 
because there are, I think, probably very few people who would say, oh my gosh, I've got so many seedlings from my native viburnums, I don't know what to do. Um, although there are cases where native plants can become a little too aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a couple of species that are very popular and have been popular for a long time that were imported from Asia that I would consider to pose a, a fairly invasive um, I won't say threat, but they are, I think, ones we should steer away from if we are concerned about them jumping the fence. If you are near a native area, a naturalistic area, parkland or whatever, that's more of a problem. If you're in the city and it's a long way to the woods, I wouldn't worry too much because the dispersion is usually closer rather than farther away. But to cut to the chase, the two most problematic species are the linden viburnum, which is viburnum dilatatum. This is a plant that's been long grown for its gorgeous red berries. Mm -hmm. It can be very bad. Uh, We've had an infestation at Brookside Nature Center for many years from them having been planted at Brookside Gardens and actually at the Nature Center itself when it was open. People didn't really know about this problem or, or it was not talked about. That plant can make big thickets. It's very favored by the birds, obviously, because of the fruit. And those thickets can outcompete native vegetation. So that one's one to avoid, I think, at all costs. The other one that's a problem is the double file viburnum, which is also a form of the Japanese snowball viburnum, and this would be viburnum plicatum. Hmm grown that's so popular for its flowers the fruits are very short-lived because the birds love them so you're going to see most of those red fruits be stripped off by the first of august and they do start to pop up in the woods and can be a problem they make widespreading layered plants layered habit i should say plants which can easily shade out what's underneath so i'd say if you're near an area natural area those species should be avoided and so if we turn to some of the native ones that are beneficial to local wildlife or if you're interested in having more native plants in your garden i was looking at the swamp haw viburnum which is viburnum nudum and that's listed as evergreen Hmm. and i think most as you mentioned viburnum are deciduous is that your experience with the nudum it's not that's a really good plant it's a really good native plant, and I had forgotten that on my list of things to talk about. Viburnum nudum looks like it ought to be evergreen. It's got medium coarse foliage that's glossy. It turns a beautiful burgundy color in the fall, but yes, it does fall off. It is not semi-evergreen in our climate. But this is a plant you would grow for white, uh, flat-topped, foamy white flowers, the gorgeous, clean foliage the fall color, and you also get fruits with this one, which start off in the summer as being uh, light green, and then they go to pale green, and then they go to pink, and then they turn the color of blueberries. Uh, Viburnum nudum is also a good plant for spots where it's seasonally damp. But I wanna address one thing before we get any further, and that is some viburnum species, and, and you'd have to check this when you're doing your research, are self-incompatible. Now, what does that mean? 
They just hate themselves. No, <laughs> they won't pollinate themselves. Even though they have perfect flowers, they're self-incompatible. So if you want to get fruit on Viburnum nudum, for example, you need two different ones that are not the same clone. So they can be seedlings or they can be two named clones. Doesn't matter. But you're not, it's not male and female. It just has to do with compatibility. So they need cross-pollination in order to set those beautiful fruits. And that's true of many viburnums, hmm. but not all. So it's best to look up and see if you're trying to grow a, a viburnum for fruit, which is not the case. You're not always trying to grow them for fruit. Uh, and realize if you really want the fruit, you may have to make room for two big guys instead of just one. Some other, so while we're on the native thing, let's just talk about those wonderful natives. We talked a little bit about Acerifolium, which has the maple leaf. And again, that's a very naturalistic looking plant. It's uh, sort of a bit leggy, it tends to make thickets. The more sun you give it, the thicker it's going to be. If you put it in the deep woods, it's gonna be a bit thin and the flower production will be less, but it'll still be showy. A relative of that is the arrowwood viburnum which is native around here as well, Viburnum dentatum. And Viburnum dentatum grows, um, again, it's a fairly rangy shrub, even in full sun. It's a, we would call it extremely informal. It has the flat top white flower clusters, and it has beautiful blue fruits. Again, that's going to require two different cultivars or two different genetics for that fruit to be formed. Uh, that is a plant that can be a little in, too informal for some gardens, but perfect for others. I think the more sun you give it, the, the less spindly it will be. Um, there is a cultivar or two of that on the market, which were selected for size. One is called Blue Muffin. In my experience, Blue Muffin got to be eight feet tall. So, you know, that's a heck of, <laughs> that, that's a heck of, a, of a muffin there. Yeah, that's quite the muffin top on that one. It's quite a muffin top. But, <laughs> um, of course, we can get into pruning of viburnums a little bit, too. The other two natives that I like are tree-form viburnums. And so they would substitute for dogwoods. And that is the native viburnum prunifolium, or blackhaw viburnum. And it, it's funny, you look at this a mature one of these, and it actually has the bark of a dogwood. And it's a pretty congested, almost thorny sort of plant. So it's one of those things that you want to train it up to a tree and not get too close to it because it's really a lot of work to, to, uh, to keep it thinned out. It has spur shoots, not actual thorns that are a little uncomfortable. The same creamy, foamy flower clusters in May, very handsome on a, on a small tree like that. And the Blue-black fruits are prolifically produced, um, and you have sort of a dull burgundy fall color on this plant. It makes an, a really lovely small tree, and it can tolerate a certain amount of moisture. It can also tolerate a lot of drought. You'll see this in dark woods, but you will also see it at its best in full sun or on the edge of the woods. Finally, there is a southern relative of this uh, viburnum prunifolium, which is called rusty blackhaw. And that will grow around here. You'd have to buy it in. And the difference in it mainly is that the foliage is glossy. 
Hmm. Very glossy and can have a slightly better fall color. But otherwise, it's going to be a large shrub or a small tree. Yeah, and I just like that name, Black Haw. There's Black something Haw. about that name. And the and the Latin dentatum for the one you you had mentioned earlier, toothed. Toothed but, leaves. Yep. Um, the word haw apparently has very ancient European origins, and it refers to any kind of edible fruit. So it can be hawthorn, mayhaw. Hmm. Those are both uh, critigus. But black haw is like a... a black berry-like fruit, but they're not any of them related. Interesting. So now that you mentioned pruning, let's get that one out of the way. So Mm. should I plant it to let it go to its natural size and shape and not touch it too much? Or uh, what would you advise? My advice is plan ahead. You know, we all get excited. We see something in bloom and we look at the books and it says, oh, that's going to get eight by 10. You're going, yeah, it won't get that big. Well, it will. So I would say if you've got a blank slate and you want to plant a viburnum that's going to get big, be just be prepared. Just take that small plant and draw a 10 foot circle and empty circle in your garden and put that plant there and stand back. Uh, as far as pruning is concerned, the best time to do it so you don't cut off flowers is immediately after bloom because these are spring blooming plants. And that would be if you're trying to do size reduction. If you're trying to change the shape a little or thin out some congestion, probably the best time to do that is in the winter so you can see what you're dealing with. And so most of the pruning you're going to do is going to be like late February, early March, just below, just before the growing season or going into winter? If the flower buds are formed now, Mm -hmm. if you prune anytime between now and spring, you're going to cut off flowers. Ah. If you you don't care about that, if you want to give that up for a year, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But otherwise you would do your pruning for probably for shape and size reduction right after the flowers fall off. Okay. And then... If you're pruning for thinning out congestion, yeah, you're going to lose some flowers there too, but it's better to do that in the winter when you can see what you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, once the foliage has dropped off Mm -hmm. and you can see the shape, it's much easier to prune at that stage, but yes, you'll be losing those flowers. It's also a great thing to do on a chilly winter day. (laughs) Yeah, although you can get a little over-enthusiastic, right, Phil? You can, but they don't, they're really pretty forgiving. They come, if if they're healthy in particular, they come roaring back. Hmm. And so other favorite viburnum varieties, maybe that we haven't talked about yet. Well, I want to go back to the uh, Korean spice, because I do Mm -hmm. think that's one that everybody would love. The foliage is fuzzy. It's medium coarse, but the shape of the plant is like a big, um, like a thundercloud sort of parked on the landscape. So it's vaguely dome-shaped and billowy. I don't find that I need to prune it because I like that that controlled yet irregular shape. Um, and then the flower buds are very obvious on that. They seem to have sort of a little, they have bracts around them. So you go out there in the winter, you can very easily tell where the flower buds are. Of course, you can also prune a viburnum like that when it's in flower and bring bouquets into the house which will stink up the whole house, which is great. A relative of Carlesii, which has the same flowers and fragrance, but a very different habit, is the Birkwood. 
viburnum that has small, glossy, semi-evergreen leaves. The Berkwood has a very upright and somewhat rangy shape, so it would probably require more frequent pruning to bring it uh, under control. I actually took one out. I had one that smelled great, but I have a very small yard, and I knew I needed something more interesting in that real estate, so I took it out. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the Berkwood eye because it is such a nice spicy scent to it. It is, and it's a different look. And it's again, it's semi-evergreen. Has You can have some interesting winter color on the leaves, but it can tend to be a bit wild. And so you would need to shape it in a way that's pleasing to you. Um, one other point I would mention, if you come across in the name the Judd Viburnum, J-U-D-D, it's virtually identical to the Korean spice. So you can plant those interchangeably. Hmm. That's not what I'm familiar with. I was going to say, I haven't seen that on a plant tag or noticed that. Yeah, but there, there, there's botanical differences that are of no interest to the gardener, I don't think. But uh, it's a Carlesii cross with something else, but it acts just like Carlesii. So that's that's a favorite, and it's one, and they don't make, I've rarely seen fruits on those. And if they, if you see them, they're going to be very few and far between, and they're black. They look like little raisins, so you don't ever have to worry about that one getting away from you or the Berkwood. And then I have planted double file viburnum. It is one of my absolute favorites because those big clusters of lace cap flowers are marched two by two down the rows of these horizontal branches and just makes the most amazing show when the fresh green leaves are out. I'm a pretty far distance from the woods, so I've never had seen seedlings come up in my, my neighborhood from this plant. But I think if you're near a woodland, I would avoid that one. Mm-hmm. Some people say, well, what about the snowball form of that? And this this is a species whose leaves look like corduroy. So that's one of the easy ways to identify it, corduroy fabric. Mm-hmm. Um, some people say because the snowball is composed of sterile flowers that you don't have to worry about seedlings. I suspect that somewhere in the middle of that cluster, there's probably some fertile flowers. So I'm just not really sure if it's 100% foolproof. Um, while we're on the subject of snowballs, so I told you there's the Japanese one, mm-hmm. there's a Chinese one, there's a European one, and there's apparently an American one. So I'll next move to the Chinese. The Chinese snowball is a beast. Hmm. It is a tree viburnum, and it will stop traffic. It's just the most wonderful plant. And you read in old books, and they say this is not hardy. Well, it's rock hardy. They got it wrong, and they've been perpetuating it ever that mistake ever since. This is going to be an 18-foot-tall small tree, very congested small tree. About the same habit, actually, as the um, blackhaw viburnum, but it's a very different creature. And in spring... The flowers start to come out in these snowballs, and they are lime green. And it, you may even have seen them in florist arrangements. And then they make incredibly large white clusters, bigger than a softball. And this plant does not smell. People always keep going up to the thing and sticking their nose in them, you know, the <laughs> way you do with camellias, and you keep mm-hmm. expecting them to, to smell, but they don't. But I have one planted on the front corner of my sunny lot, 
and it literally does stop traffic. People are going, what is this? Thing? But it's also in scale with the flower bed that it's in. So it would function in the way a dwarf viburnum, I mean, a dwarf, for example, dogwood might, or crabapple. So that one's just good for flower power. The um, European one, European snowball viburnum has a almost, again, a maple-like leaf. The American version of that used to be called viburnum trilobum. Now they believe that they are the same species on two different continents. My advice is to steer away from the European and the cranberry bush American viburnum for the following reasons. They are very, very prone to bacterial disease which is different than fungal disease. We don't have that many bacterial diseases of woody plants, but that can take out whole chunks of the European viburnum and the uh, trilobum American cranberry bush. And I would just avoid them, unfortunately, because the, the, the flowers and the fruits are beautiful. The other viburnums are generally more resistant to that. And then there's, there's some that you grow for foliage um, these are mostly screening plants, and the most common is the leather leaf, which has got great long banana length, fuzzy, extremely fuzzy, irritatingly fuzzy, uh, evergreen leaves. And this is a really great screening plant with the following exception, and this is offensive to some people. When it gets below 30 degrees, they act like rhododendrons and all the leaves drop, hmm. droop. They don't fall off, they droop. And so the whole thing looks like it's freezing and sad. So while it's an excellent screening plant and it has great flowers and interesting fruits, and the deer don't bother it, it, it can be a bit, I don't know, depressing in the winter. <laughs> Does it do that thing that the rhododendrons do where they exactly. curl? They just curl into themselves. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that's short lived when it does that and they pop right back. Yeah. I like to look out the window and go up, oh, put on another layer. The viburnum's drooping. Mm -hmm. um, another viburnum that's been introduced and in with our warming winters has become something that might be a player in our area is the chindo viburnum. And chindo gets as big as the leather leaf you know you're looking at perhaps 18 feet but it has very shiny glossy polished evergreen leaves and these don't seem to droop so this is a plant that might be a good screening substitute and it doesn't get as big as Nellie Stevens holly so uh, it gets almost as big but it's a little better behaved so you don't have to prune that one as much mm -hmm. that plant will not fruit by itself Remember what I said about incompatibility. Plant a row of Chendo viburnums. Nothing else is going to pollinate it. And because they're all genetically identical, you'll never see the fruit on that, which means it can't um, seed around. So that, that would be our evergreen ones. There's one other, which is a specific cultivar called Kanoi, C-O-N-O-Y, that has small textured foliage, and it makes what looks like sort of a green haystack that's about hip height. And that has beautiful foamy white flowers and bright red berries. So that's a, a good plant for that sort of size and shape. Uh, and it looks good in the winter. So that would be the evergreen ones. So I guess I would sum up by saying that because there's so many types of viburnums, they can be planted for flowers. They can be planted for fragrance. They can be planted for fruits. They can be planted for foliage. They can be planted for form. So all these wonderful Fs describe how you would choose among viburnums. And some viburnums will have both. They will have flowers and fruits that are interesting. And some just have interesting fruits. 
and so forth. But to remembering that you, you probably need to do a little bit of homework before you plant them to see if, if you are constantly going to be fighting with their tendency to get big. Uh, I should, should I talk about a little bit about culture? Mm-hmm. So I was just going to ask that, do they need oh, fertilization? God, no. Please, please um... don't. <laughs> they grow in perfectly okay. perfectly well in average our average soils as long as the drainage is adequate they'll they'll grow in busted up clay just fine um they basically have what i like to use them when i was teaching class i made up a term called forsythia culture and I, which means if forsythia will grow there this will grow there and pretty much everybody knows what a forsythia <laughs> is and they're going well i just stuck it in the ground and it grew and you can say that for most of these viburnums as well they, but their enemy is poor drainage. And so supplemental watering, it's first couple yeah. years, but pretty much after that, I don't notice anybody ever watering no. their viburnums. Supplemental vibratums. watering, yeah, when they first get started, because they're being grown in a, you know, a soilless mix. Most of us are not spending hours digging the perfect hole and kissing each grain of soil. We just dig a hole really small, shove the damn thing in, and hope it grows. It will, but it will dry out that first couple of years so it starts to root out. Well, this has been so fascinating, Phil. Any final thoughts about versatile viburnums? There's so much information on the web. You don't have to have a plant book. If you see a plant you like in a garden center or you like online, do some research, figure out how big it's going to get, find out if it has any bad habits. If your tendency is more toward growing native plants, the range of viburnums is a little smaller, but as you've heard, there are many beautiful types grow there. The greatest majority of cultivated viburnums are not native. Uh, they have been selections made of Asian species where the genus is more um, wide, um, more diverse, but there are plenty to choose from on either side of the aisle. Terrific. And I like that either side mm -hmm. of the aisle. Well, it, it's true, really. <laughs> and I've had yeah. big discussions with people about who had different opinions and we don't have to reopen that debate. It's, there's stuff there for you depending on what you like. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Phil. And if somebody wants to follow up with you, how would they contact you? They would contact me through you. Okay, fair enough. So they can uh, get me through social media or get us through the washingtongardener.blogspot.com website and shoot me a note and I'll pass that on to Phil. Perfect. Thank you again, Phil. Enjoyed it. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Obedient plant, plant profile. Obedient plant, Physostigia virginiana, is also known as false dragonhead or Virginia lion's heart. This perennial wildflower blooms in shades of pink to lavender. In the midsummer, it sends up tall stalks of tubular flowers that reach three to four feet high. The individual blossoms resemble snapdragons and are visited by a wide range of pollinators. It is native to most of eastern North America and is hardy to USDA zones 3 to 9.
the flowers have no scent, and it is deer and rabbit resistant. The long blooming period is a result of the individual flowers opening in sequence up the stem over a matter of several weeks. Obedient plant prefers full sun, but will bloom sporadically in part shade to full shade locations as well. It tolerates poor soil, drought, and poor drainage. It is easy to dig out a shallow root section to move or share it. There is no need to fertilize it or give it any special care. You may wish to cut off the tall flower spikes once it finishes blooming to prevent the seeds from forming and spreading. It is a member of the mint family, and there you have your warning. This plant will take over if you don't stay vigilant. It is not called obedient due to its growing habit. Instead, it gets that common name because the flower position on the stem is pliable and easy to work with in floral arrangements. Better behaved cultivars include Miss Manners, which is a clumping form with white flowers and better suited for a mixed garden border. Obedient plant, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, over at the community garden plot, the zucchini has stopped producing, but the peppers and sun gold tomatoes keep going and going. In the place of the zucchini, I think we'll plant some type of cover crop to experiment and see what works best there. Back in my own home garden, the turtle head flowers have finally started to open. It seems like they're two or three weeks behind everybody else's. I have both the white and the pink version and we'll be doing a plant profile on turtle head chelonia coming up. So listen out for that in upcoming episodes. In the local gardening world, there's several upcoming fall events for local gardeners in the greater Washington DC area. Um, first, is the Green Spring Garden Family Fall Festival and that's September 25th, a Saturday from 9 to 3 p.m. and Washington Gardener Magazine will have a booth there so come by and say hi. And the following weekend, October 2nd, there's a Fona bulb sale at the National Arboretum and Fona is friends of the National Arboretum. And that's Saturday, October 2nd from 9 a.m. till 12 noon. And that will be, of course, spring blooming bulbs that you can plant now in the fall. Um, that same day over in Virginia, is the Northern Alexandria Native Plant Sale, and that takes place from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. in the parking lot of the Church of St. Clement on Quaker Lane. And you can find out more information about that at northernalexandrianativeplantsale.org. And another bulb sale coming up the following weekend uh, from that on October 9th through 10th, and this is in New Freedom, Pennsylvania, this is hosted by Harvesting History, and they'll have heirloom bulbs for sale along with onions, shallots, elephant garlic, and heirloom seed garlic, along with, of course, your typical daffodils, tulips, and that sort of thing. Look for it in the parking lot of the New Freedom Business Park near 60 East High Street. Happy gardening!
Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.